0: Alright, boys and girls, episode 126 with Dr. John Russin is about to start, and I am particularly really excited for this episode because John is another fellow Polish trainer, but the only sad part is he does not have a long, complicated last name like I do, so I'm a little bit jealous. But this entire episode is filled with such great information john just puts it right out there and explains everything so clearly and it's no nonsense no bullshit straight to the point this episode is freaking awesome enjoy here we go hey guys welcome back to another episode of cut the shit get fit i'm your host and joining me today is another fellow polish trainer dr john russin say hello
1: What's going on, man? It's great to be here. Uh, Polish in the house, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So for the audience, I always like to break the ice and ask my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend?
1: Man, so this is uh, kind of the norm for me. I'm going out and I'm presenting at uh, National Strength and conditioning association conference out in milwaukee so i live in madison wisconsin so being in milwaukee is about an hour and a half drive away i'm all for that because i've been traveling the world the last three or four months almost on a weekly basis so being in my backyard being able to do what i do i'm looking forward to it man
0: awesome so for the audience who don't know who you are can you do a small little intro of who you are what you do and how did you get into this industry in the first place
1: Man, that's a a tough question, but um, I've been asked that that so many times lately that I I truly break it down to, uh, I did a shit ton of coaching. I've done a lot of education, almost 10 years in university, and now I specialize in putting together banged up meatheads, high performance athletes, people that are having struggles with their training, or people that are just hitting a plateau, whether it be through performance or through, you know, that's kind of my niche population that I work with. And I like to think that I'm one of the best in the industry, again, working with that specific population.
0: Awesome. Um, So how did you get started? Like, because we were talking about this over email, like you have your PT and a lot of people are like, oh, this guy's a physical therapist, like that's what he does. But when you actually like dive into what you do, you Do you like to train people? You like to lift heavy. So I'm kind of curious why you kind of went down the road of PT first.
1: Well, I didn't do it first. Um, That's a huge misconception. And we need to do a better job of actually like putting good information out there on my background. But Mm -hmm. so I have a DPT, a doctorate in physical therapy, but I also have exercise science and also a kinesiology degrees. Um, I was a strength and conditioning coach first at the high school sector, and then uh, in college before I ever went into higher education. So I've been coaching people for the last 13 years and and really coaching a diverse um, set of athletes and general fitness clientele over that time. And it just came down to the point where I just wanted to do a little bit more education. I had opportunity uh, via scholarships to go in and actually get a doctorate level education for pretty much free. And I did that while I continued to coach at a high level. And it was one of the best things I ever did was continuing to coach while I was in graduate school, because honestly, I've never taken an insurance payment or done the traditional physical therapy model a day in my life, Mm -hmm. I just used the skill sets that I got in graduate school in order to better understand the human body, its physiology, its biomechanics, and the way that all those things integrate back together to, again, really put together pain-free performance programming that are going to keep people healthy, but more so get people results in the process as well. So I almost look at it as like a reverse engineering model that I do. You know, I was really great at building people up almost from the get-go, but I learned how to kind of reverse engineer back out through injuries or plateaus to the point where that's what we do on a continuous basis. Because one of the big secrets in the industry is that a vast majority of people are dealing with pain problems. They're dealing with dysfunctions. People that want to lose fat, they want to gain muscle, they want to feel, look, and perform at their highest levels they're having pain problems and dysfunctional problems. So any great coach really should be able to work with some of these things well within their scopes of practice, but to get more out of the results that they can give their clients.
0: No, I like that a lot. And it's really smart because most coaches deal with some broken person and then you're just like, oh, what am I supposed to do with this? But I love how you wanted to get your physical therapy as like continuing education. And it just makes a lot of sense to me. And I love when coaches figure out something like that. And they're like, I'm just going to better service my client. So why not just do it anyway?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I fell into it. Um, I, I never been a physical therapy a day in my life. I've never been a consumer of the rehab model, even uh, being a high performance athlete myself in the sport of baseball. I was never a consumer of physical therapy, but being able to get in, uh, spend a huge amount of time uh, going through a doctoral dissertation, doing research Being able to get in on cadavers for two years and uh, really master biomechanics and anatomy of the human body. You know, there's nothing that uh, somebody can do to fake that. You you know, you can never get that knowledge taken away from you. And it's something that I continue to use on a daily basis that's truly helped me out even uh, today in the way that we train our clients.
0: Nice. And like the other thing I wanted to ask you is like almost like what your philosophy on training is because I find that. You know, as coaches grow into the industry, they almost kind of form their own model. So I'm kind of curious, like, what's your model when it comes to training someone from point A to point Z to kind of get them successful in whatever their goal is?
1: Yeah, that's a great great question because that's currently the model that I'm teaching around the world this year, the pain-free performance training model, which is my two-day seminar series. And and through that series, we really look at everything from screening and assessing the six foundational movement patterns, the squat, the hinge, the lunge, the push, the pull, and then locomotion – but also how to program pain-free alternatives that are custom-fit to the individual in front of you. From there, looking at the functional hypertrophy training model, which is really geared around maximizing muscular trainability while minimizing joint stress. I'm a big believer that if we can keep people consistent, we can keep them pain-free, and we can keep them highly motivated, motivated then they're going to be able to unlock their physical potentials not this month or this year but for the long term our training model is centered around achieving longevity so we want to be able to do what we want to do with physical self-sufficiency for the rest of our lives is your training doing that for you right now that's a question that we ask our people. Usually they're coming to me for a reason. They're either plateauing out, they're having pain problems. Something is not going well. But that's the time where we have the biggest emphasis on really trying to rebuild these people back up. So again, when they're 50, when they're 60, when they're 90 years old, they're still living a meaningful life in terms of physical and physicality.
0: No, I really like that. And the two things that like I really enjoyed that you just said it was like consistency and longevity. And those are the things that people kind of overlook all the time. And like, I deal with a lot of general population people, and a lot of times it's like, man, if you just show up like every week, you're gonna feel so much better. And it's always like the toughest thing to get people going is having them just come to the gym at least once a week just to move, to kind of prolong that, you know, feeling of pain free moving on a daily basis.
1: Well, it's something that uh, burnouts and injury rates in our industry in current day are skyrocketing. You know, the incidence of injury, whether it be lower be shoulder or knee, the top three pain points in the human body among active population, those things are climbing and getting worse over time. And this is crazy because we have more education. We have more experience than we ever had in our side of the fitness industry before. So, you know, where what. What's the missing link? We have many different cofactors in there. But really, I think that people are under the impression that they have to go and kill themselves in order to achieve a result. But we look at the statistics, and they really say six weeks is about the time period where people either end up getting hurt, whether it's acute or chronic-based injuries that flare up where they stop training, or they just get burned out to the point where systemically they cannot sustain you know, two a days, seven days a week for six weeks. So at that six-week point, if we can get people past that, and more so if we can actually start getting them to buy into our systems, that is where they're going to have the biggest potential for actually learning new habits, ingraining habits that they're going to be able to use for a lifetime. So If we can get people motivated just enough to stay within our programs for one to two months, then motivation becomes secondary because results are the most motivating thing in the world. I like to think that we produce better results in my given population than anyone else in the industry, and that's why people continue to be motivated. That's why they continue to work hard. Uh, Results are king, they always will be.
0: Nice, and the other question I wanted to bring up is like you educate a lot of people, and, like, I am so thankful for people like you in the industry that make our industry better, but I'm kind of curious, what question do you always get at, like, every conference from the same amount of people, and I'm kind of curious to what that is?
1: Uh, Me being me with my background, I always get, like, this super theoretical questions like hey my shoulder hurts while I bench press what should I do and honestly there's no good answer to that because uh as Stuart McGill famously quoted it always depends And really, that's uh, that's a center around our model as well. We try to give people the best programming possible. But I would be bullshitting people to say that cookie cutter works for everybody. You know, a cookie cutter does not work for everybody. Even the best programs in the world, like a functional hypertrophy training program, it's going to be lights out for 80% of people. But you know what? Those 20% of the outliers, they need to have a little bit more customization in order to fit movement patterns to fit structures and schedules according to their body, their needs, their past orthopedic history, their past systemic histories, because we're all special little snowflakes. And truly, we need to be training as such. So... I always laugh when I get the theoretical injury questions because it could be a million and one things in the world. You know, when you have a doctorate level education in advanced uh, differential diagnostic, you know the immense amount of possibilities that something could possibly be. But putting the major factors first, looking for red flags, Things that people are doing, uh, the power of the addition by subtraction, you know, that's one of the most powerful things in the world. People are always looking for a quick fix to something. They're looking for some theoretical knowledge that may or may not work. That stuff is not good in terms of actually getting attainable, real-world results. We need to actually be deep diving in and treating people as individuals and programming them as customized as possible in order to, again— achieve those things that we were talking about with self-sufficiency and longevity with the training career
0: awesome and I'm happy you brought up Stuart McGill and that just reminded me of another question I was going to ask you is when you were like getting into the industry who did you look up to for continuing education material (laughs) um
1: that's that's a tough question so I had the great opportunity to mentor under amazing coaches over at the university of Buffalo, where really I started my career. Um, you know, I had those mentors really on a daily basis, hundred percent of the time or years on end, you know, that laid down the best foundation that I could have ever imagine because I never had bad coaching in my life. I've never had a bad mentor in my career and everything that I've always taken in has been positive for the most part, but going through, uh, um, it's been very simple. Uh, I've had a couple coaches that I've learned from in person over the last 13 years. Um, the University of Buffalo staff has been one of them. Uh, I took one of my first jobs at a place called Fitness Quest 10 out in Southern California with a, a Perform Better uh, staple guy, Todd Durkin. And he was definitely a huge mentor of mine for years early on there. But really, you know, I've worked for the FMS before, so obviously Gray Cook, Lee Burton, their entire staff. Um, they've had a huge influence upon me just because I've had a lot of exposure to their systems. I believe that their systems are something that... that are super, super effective when used properly. And this stuff, you know, it just snowballs over and over and over again. But I feel like I've taken on mentors that all believe what I believed, even when I didn't know that I believed it, which is, again, this pain-free performance training model. It's bringing the best of all these different specialties in the fitness industry, whether it be rehabilitation, whether it be sports performance, or even just um, training general fitness clientele with a, a rhyme and a reason of what you're doing. And I really just try to um, not have like information overload at all in my career, but always just try to look at people that believe what I believe in, because you shouldn't be reinventing yourself every single time that you read an article or every single time that you go to a continuing education course. You should have what you believe in and then try to supplement in on top of uh, more information of people that, again, have your same mindset. No, yeah,
0: that made a lot of sense that That was awesome. Um, The other thing I want to get into is a bunch of Facebook and Instagram questions. Because I have this thing where when I listen to podcasts and, like, I send in a question and it never gets answered, and I'm like, damn that guy. I'm going (laughs) to, like, get every question that someone asks me on my show. So we have a bunch, but I think we can just, like, hammer them out. Um, Oh, let's do it. Yeah, so the first one is from Shantanu. Hopefully I said that right. Uh, ask him to put some light on number one hamstring health and how to get rid of tight hams. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those theoretical ones. Uh,
1: That's a super common question, right? Yeah, 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 that is one of those things that I was just talking about. But because I've been asked this 10 zillion times, um, I have a great resource on my site, uh, and it really goes to show the six-phase dynamic warm-up sequence that we use not only to prepare our athletes to train, but also the compounding effect of fixed glaring weak links. And sometimes, uh, quote-unquote, hamstring tightness is one of those weak links. But we see people going through, and we see them foam rolling every day. We see them stretching their hamstrings every day. And after a year, five years, ten years, they actually get tighter in the process, which always blows my mind. We don't have usually true mobility problems. What we have are sequencing problems or stability-based problems predominantly. And those are the things that can't be corrected by more mobility. You know, you can never fix, uh, you know, a mobility problem by going the opposite side and trying to get more stability out of it. So I would say that um, tight hamstrings are one of these things that it's not just about the hamstrings itself. The hamstrings are part of the complex on the posterior side of the hip girdle that have to like articulate in on the front side of the body with core sequencing and stability. So, um, uh, <laughs> avoid rehab purgatory, avoid foam rolling, avoid stretching on end for 45 minutes a day and actually step back and assess what the true weak link is. I always to give it three times. You know, if you want to foam roll your hamstrings, do it for three days in a row. If you don't see a notable benefit after three days, you better look somewhere else or, Again, it becomes a ritualistic practice as opposed to something that is going to be an objective-based result practice, meaning that we actually get functional transference in on what we're trying to achieve.
0: Now, that makes sense. And, like, this might kind of go into something else, but I'm kind of curious your opinion on the, like, FRC. Like, have you looked into that at all?
1: Yeah, we just had a, a bunch of the FRC, um, their instructors attend my course in Los Angeles, and they're really smart, man. You know, Dr. Andrea Ospina, mm-hmm. fucking genius, uh, believe fully in his systems, you know, really great guy. We're interconnected because we're both it pros. So we're on the it team and we do a lot of our educations uh, in the same area of the industry. So yeah, you know, like their systems, are gold standard so it's a it's a great continuing ed for any trainer that wants to get more into that because they actually go into not only just the the techniques themselves but the diagnostics as well the key you got to know what you're working on before you can improve it
0: yeah because like this past march i got certified through the frc and when i was going through the course i'm like fuck all this stuff makes so much sense like why isn't everyone doing this
1: According to their attendance, I think everyone is doing it. Uh, They're killing the industry. Yeah,
0: big time. (laughs) Um, So, this person had like two more questions, so we're going to see if we can hammer those out. But um, the second one was how to get more explosive using chains and bands.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, So, accommodating base resistances, aka chains and bands. Um, it's a method that we use a ton of, uh, not only for dynamic effort method, uh, which is a part of the, the West side method or AKA the conjugate based method, but also for kind of repatterning movement patterns itself. So being more explosive, uh, people misuse bands and ch- chains more than any other modality in the sports performance industry, because they really truly don't have an appreciation for why they're using them. Um, for us, we try to keep, um, bands, chains, and more explosive-based movements in uh, a couple days a week for some of the movement patterns around the squat, the hinge, and then the press. But um, it's something that you have to use right, and you have to make sure that you're using it on an advanced athlete. (laughs) This is not for a beginner. It's not for a novice. Honestly, it's not even for an intermediate-based athlete, you have to have a huge amount of strength requisites to actually get the most out of uh, a true max effort, dynamic effort-based mixed modality uh, training program. But um, bands, chains, they're hugely effective in many, many different ways, but they get a bad reputation because people just truly don't know how to use them properly.
0: So what would you say, like, what prerequisites would someone need to have in order to start using chains and bands in their programming?
1: So we use them for intermediate people if uh, for movement fixes. So it can really, uh, in terms of bands, it can really kick on stability very, very uh, quickly. In terms of almost like a reactive neuromuscular training technique to try to teach them how to stabilize because there is a little bit of a perturbating force with it. But uh, training age is big. You know, you have to be able to have a requisite uh, movement pattern something that's solid something that's stable something that you've gained um, strength capacity of power with before you ever try to add velocity to a movement or try to add accommodating based resistance to a high velocity movement there's two different ways to always progress uh, any sort of movement you can maximally load it or you can maximize velocity so Bands, chains, accommodate-based resistances when trained with the dynamic effort method. It's all about trying to maximize the force equation, mass times acceleration. So unless you've really gone down the mass rabbit hole and really maximize the mass that you're able to use, you're not going to be able to um, really use the dynamic effort method as effectively as you'd want to. So training age is big. Being... Being able to have sound foundational movement patterns that are pain-free and being able to put uh, loading on them you know those are huge requisites that a vast majority of people just don't have
0: Oh, well, that makes sense and like you're right like chains and bands are probably the most misused tools ever because you just see a bunch of coaches in different gyms where they just slap chains and bands just because because it looks cool <laughs>
1: You know what? If you're looking at it and if you see trainers or athletes use chains and bands, you can identify the assholes from the people that really know what they're doing in terms of accommodating resistance by their setups. So if you're hanging chains literally from the bar, that is not the setup that you want because uh, the difference in loading is going to be like four to six pounds. So there's a difference in loading from the bottom to a top of range of motion. So if the big chains are hanging from the collar of the barbell, you know you're dealing with an idiot. (laughs) the other thing if you're using band training and the bands ever go on slack meaning that you totally lose band tension at the bottom of a movement again you know that you're dealing with somebody that has no idea how to use these advanced training methodologies so dialing in your setups you know that's like step one if you can't do that you're not going to get any benefit from it and you're probably going to just pigeonhole your results in the process if your setups are poor and your training methodology is poor
0: That was really well said. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So the third question from the same guy, intelligently programming direct arm training. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, So, Again, direct arm training,
1: it's something that's an intermediate to an advanced method. Um, big believer that people just need to get better at the big foundational movement patterns first that need to get stronger. I wrote a, a epic article over on T Nation a couple of years ago. It was about relative strength tests. And these are things that I use uh, over the last 10 years with my athletes. And really before you get it, in and start doing a lot of bicep curls and tricep pushdowns. Your relative strength has to be again at an intermediate to an advanced level. That means being able to do uh, 10 unbroken, perfect, pristine pushups. It means to be able to do six to eight, depending on female or male, pullups. You know, this is stuff that, unless you're relatively strong in terms of your body weight, you're not gonna get a whole lot of majoring in the minors. So direct arm training 100% has a role in a well-oriented strength and conditioning program. But again, you need to be putting the major pieces in programming first, which is maximizing strength, hypertrophy set and rep ranges for the six foundational movement patterns and some of their derivatives. So we use direct arm training with um, all of our intermediate to advanced athletes. Almost from a shoulder health standpoint, elbow health standpoint, it helps uh, ingrain mind-muscle connection, linking kinematic chains together. And really, it comes down to yes, your arms have muscles in them. The muscles contract and they relax, and they're functional. You know, functionality in arm training, it's there as long as the goal is correct, as long as the training age is correct, and as long as your athlete's experience is going to match up with what you want to do with it.
0: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so next question um, from Stephen Ellis. Uh, serious moment for me. I enjoy a lot of his content, but I was wondering how he determines what he often classifies as dysfunctional to be truly so and not a variation of normal.
1: <laughs> so, uh... We look at human movement as one of the most subjective things in the world. If you match that with pain, maybe the second most subjective thing in the world, us as fitness professionals, we're dealing with one of the most highly subjective types of experiential training in the world. You know, you look at every single person, and every single person is so unique in terms of their movement capabilities, in terms of their ability to, you know, stave off pain. But we have to be looking. uh, It's not a, a black and white line. You know, you're not on the right or left side of this dysfunction line. You know, the way I simply define many of these things is like I run all of my people through FMSs. I run them through SFMAs. I run them through advanced diagnostic testing, advanced movement-based skill testing, and that's what determines uh, whether I say dysfunction or not dysfunction. But guess what, your client doesn't give a fuck. They don't give a fuck what you call it because if you're a trainer and you're saying, oh, this is a dysfunctional squat pattern, you're just an idiot. Um, your, Your athletes, your clients, they don't care where they get the results from, they don't care what it's called, it's your job. So in terms of the question, like, What do I deem dysfunctional? What do I deem non-dysfunctional or functional? It doesn't really matter. It's uh, after we drive all the data from our intakes of our athletes, then we get a better overlook on all the six foundational movement patterns that I really uh, put a huge emphasis on in terms of building out programming. So uh, just for the trainers and the coaches, is listening, like, make sure that you you realize that what you say matters. Uh, we're not sitting here trying to scare our clients and our athletes into being like, hey, that's a dysfunctional squat pattern. That's going to line you up for uh, increased incidence of, you know, patellofemoral pain and lumbopelvic pain. If we load it like this, they don't care. Like, it's just theoretical. So, you're just trying to identify red flags at a point. If something's a red flag for you, you know, that's how I would deem dysfunctional. Dysfunctional would line up for something that would increase injury rates. It's as simple as that.
0: Man, you are on fire today. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so second part to Stephen's question. Also, when it comes to his challenges, one of which I enjoyed, the 50% goblet for 25 plus Are these simply measures he likes to use with his clients, or does he believe that they are mandatory for all, and why?
1: Mandatory for all. No, nothing is mandatory for all. There are no absolutes, period. There's no absolutes in training. There's no absolutes in life. There's always going to be outliers there. Um, People have a misunderstanding for many of our our tests. Um, you know, relative strength test, what he's talking about is the goblet squat challenge. Goblet squat challenge is something that I use in a testing scenario, but also a training scenario that loads 50% of somebody's body weight in their hands in a goblet position using a dumbbell or a kettlebell. You go through and you knock out as many consecutive reps with pristine form as possible. The reason that we use this is not so we can say, hey, you guys failed the test, or hey, you guys passed the test, good job. The only reason that I use these relative trained tests is so, as a coach, I can use my eyes, my ears, and my coaching gut to figure out what is the weakest link in this movement pattern. Taking the goblet squat challenge, for example, is the inability to hold the weight the weakest link, is the inability to keep uh, a strong and stabilized neutral spine the weakest link. Do we have valgus varus moments happening at the knees do we go on our toes when we squat what keeps them from hitting the relative strength number that is what people need to be focusing on because guess what we started this podcast saying there's only a couple things that matter in training you need to train hard you need to buy into your program you need to stay consistent but on top of all those things you need to identify weak links and strengthen them so we can build them back up and irradiate them from Uh, from their movement systems. So we're using these relative strength tests in order to identify weak links, simply put. Um, But it's also a hell of a way in terms of the goblet squat to elicit a pain-free training effect that is truly just one of the most devastating things that you've ever done. Uh, Loading up 50% of your body weight in your hands and knocking out maximal amount of reps, it's pretty tough, but it's something that I would say almost every single athlete that I've ever worked with uh, aside from those that have serious body composition issues, have been able to go 20, 30, 40, even 50 reps on this challenge. So people, uh, they get inherently butt hurt. They get, they get really nervous when they think that they can't do something, especially a challenge like, oh shit, I can't do that. I only got 17 reps. This is stupid. <laughs> so it's a defense mechanism. But all, we're not saying pass or fail here. That's not the biggest thing. Uh, he's referring back to an old T Nation article super popular article. We looked at a couple relative strength tests, again, ones that I've been using for 10 plus years. And there are things that, again, as a coach, all the, the only reason that you're testing is so you can yield data. The only reason that you yield data is so you can use the data to improve programming. When you look at it like that, it becomes very simple.
0: Awesome. Uh, so the next question from Tara, uh, what are three mobility exercises that every trainer should be using for their general population client?
1: So um, not three three specific ones. Uh, that could be really arduous, but mm-hmm. three areas of concern for people. They're ones that we review in our course all the time. Uh, thoracic spine slash cage, we need to be able to mobilize this thing into extension, rotation, and side bending. This is a common pain point for people, especially with generalized front-sided shoulder pain. So if we can start to just move a little bit more optimally throughout the thoracic spine and cage integrating as a functional unit, that's going to be area one. Area two is going to be the superficial and deep hip flexors, a.k.a. the quads and the iliopsoas. Because we sit, you know, I'm sitting here right now, slouched over in front of this microphone talking to you. You know, I'm probably going to need to mobilize my hip flexors before I go and squat tomorrow. You know, that's just part of the deal. And many of us, even my high-performance athletes making millions of dollars on the field on Sundays, they're sitting on buses, they're sitting on planes, they're sitting in the locker room. Everybody's sitting, and more so, everyone has handheld technologies and Front of them. So uh, posturally oriented positions, trying to negate those, that's a big key factor. And really the last one, it's being able to utilize the lumbopelvic complex uh, ideally, meaning that we need to somehow articulate the lumbar spine, the pelvis, and the hips together, working as a functional and centered. Logistic unit, as opposed to working independent of one another. So, you know, when we go over in hip hinge, we don't want just the lower back working. When we go over in hip hinge, we don't just want the pelvis turning over. We want all this stuff happening in sequence, and that's something that is truly um, one of the most untapped ways to eradicate pain, but also increase functionality, strength, and trainability, which is really working on that lumbo-pelvic rhythm. Um, it's a really important thing. So when you look at the three, you know, T-spine, hips, and then lumbar core support. If you can work on those three things, you're going to have a huge amount of success with the vast majority of your clients and yourself.
0: Um, so other question. this is for like me though. Um, do you have any experience with having like um, clients who've had, you know, like fusion surgery for their low backs at all? Yeah, for sure um what's your experience on like the rate of their pain when they come out of surgery because i have a handful of clients that are like considering getting the surgery done and then you know they talk to their friend who's had it done they're like oh my god like i feel amazing there's no more pain but then they talk to another person who's got the same surgery and they're like you know if their pain scale out of 10 they were at an eight it went down to a six so it's almost like this gray area that they don't know of like if i should, you know, dive in and take the surgery and risk that i might feel good or might not feel any better than i started with.
1: So, we just need to throw it out there that surgery is not a cure all, especially when we're talking about the lumbar spine. I mean, there are loads and loads of research on this topic and, and basically the best metas that i have read It really states that it's a fucking coin flip if you go in any type of lower back surgery it's a coin flip whether you get a positive or a negative result and that really goes to show that usually it's not the mechanical issue like oh that disc herniation it's not getting any better well maybe it doesn't have to get better in order for you to get out of pain and for you to increase your functionality again again you know going back like i'd be I'd be stupid to pretend that I knew more about lower back than Stuart McGill who has literally done research over 36 years in his career at University of Waterloo. You know, he is a big believer and I am a big believer that 95 plus percent of people are non-surgical candidates. That means that if you go through all the conservative-based treatments, if you go through physical therapy, if you go through chiro, if you start working with a trainer, you start doing everything under the sun in order to get back, most likely that's going to be the thing that fixes you. The people that have trouble going into surgery are the ones that are looking for quick fixes. You know, Usually, it's not the mechanical issue that's causing the actual pain. The pain is a symptom. The pain is not the origin. When they cut out the symptoms, the origin still remains. This is a very, very important point. So people that are surgical candidates are ones that have done everything under their power in order to get better. That doesn't mean, oh, I tried four sessions of physical therapy and it still hurt, so I'm gonna go get knifed up. No, <laughs> you know, you're probably not gonna have a very good result for that. And if you do, it's fucking Russian roulette. Good luck. The people that are true surgical candidates are the ones that have gone through every single thing, and they're few and far between. Most people aren't just willing to correct what needs to be corrected because it's hard work. It's a lot easier to go get your back cut open than it is to go through and actually start looking at your movement patterns, looking at your daily positions, improving your nutrition, improving your trainability, getting in better shape, losing weight, having better systemic health. All that shit matters in terms of pain response. So it's a lot easier to try to self-justify that you're going to get better by going to get cut open instead of going in and actually looking at the root causes of these things that have compounded over time.
0: Man, I love all your answers. You're just like straight to the point. It's so good. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah. So the next one is from Jen. She asks uh, I would love to know his go to exercises for people who have hypermobility.
1: So, go to exercises. No, that's again another of those theoretical things. See, yeah. <laughs> the questions you had a good question before. It's like, what do people ask that you get asked all the time? It's the yeah. theoretical questions. But more so, let's look at the overlook of hypermobility, meaning that somebody has too much mobility. This is actually a decent problem in our industry because, again, we're under the mindset if we have pain, if we have dysfunction, if we have problems with our movement patterns, that we must need more mobility. These are the people that are at risk of really fucking themselves up if they're trying to feed more and more and more mobility into an already hypermobile segment or a hypermobile region. Really, I look at trying to maximize the true biomechanical ranges of motion that your joints should have access to. So that means, uh, let's take like an RDL, for example. Uh, somebody with hypermobility might be able to keep a neutral spine and they might be able to touch their forehead to the floor on an RDL. You know, do we want to be training that? Probably not. Because uh, I talk about this in my course the motor control gap. The motor control gap is essentially passive range of motion minus active range of motion. We're all going to have discrepancies in this motor control gap, but more than 10 to 15 percent is what actually increases the incidence of injuries. So we're thinking about somebody with hypermobility that might have passive range of motion capabilities that are, say, 200 degrees, but actively they can only control through 100 degrees. So they have 100 percent mismatch there, and that's the range of motion that people tend to get hurt in. So hypermobile clients are just as uh, likely, if not more likely, to have training or life-related injuries as the people that are under neural lock. You know, the people that have true mobility issues. So, um, you know, it's the both sides of the equation: mobility and stability. It's a continuum that we have to have good appreciation for. But we are ideally training exactly the same way. We're just making sure that we avoid stretch-based movements, stretching under load, any, um, mobility based protocols, you know, that's not going to be in the cards for somebody with a hypermobility based syndrome.
0: Gotcha. Um, so the next one I wanted to ask you is what is the question you wish people asked you? Like that question where, you know, you finish your talk at a conference, everyone's clapping and you're waiting for that one person's hand to come up and be like, this is what I need to know. And you're like, yes, finally, let me tell you. (laughs)
1: I wish more people would ask, like, how do I take
0: action on
1: all of this information? Information without action is theory. Information plus action is results-based practice. So I wish more people would do less studying, they'd do less education, and they'd more master what they actually need to know so they can actually apply it into their clients. So uh, many times, you know, I write a lot of articles. We do a lot of content, a lot of education, some deep diving stuff. But at the end of the day, I always want somebody to be able to take away like, hey, how do I go and train my my athletes different on Monday? How do I train my client different on Monday? Like, how do I actually take this information and use it? Because, you know, we all like to be impressed reading an article over on T Nation. You know, we all like to share different stuff, uh, polarizing thought process processes, unless we can take action upon stuff. So that's really a big reason that I teach systems in my courses. I don't teach theory. You know, there are a lot of, because it's a lot of lecture based but I teach systems in order to actually have our attendees take action on the methodologies. And the system, the blueprint itself is the most powerful thing that we could possibly use because a system is repeatable. A system is something that that can be scaled and graded over time. A system is something that can be taught. So I wish more people asked about the overall system, the overall outlook of how we train, how we treat, how we manage our athletes, as opposed to, again, the theoretical science behind something that most likely nobody's going to be able to take action on anyways.
0: Now, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's what a lot of people need is a system because like there's so much information out there constantly. And then you're Not a lot of people actually implement it and they just kind of go day by day and you kind of they just almost hope that their clients get better. But if you stick to a system long enough, you should see the result that you're aiming for.
1: No doubt about it. Yeah.
0: Um, So, very last question for the audience where can they find you online? What projects do you have coming up? Any speaking engagements you can just go plug away?
1: I mean, everything can be found over on my website, uh, drjohnrussin.com, drjohnrusi Uh This year is pretty exciting because we have a lot of things in play. So over on EliteFTS.com, we're going to be having weekly video on the Fixing Dave Tate project. So Dave Tate's a client that I took on this year, uh, polarizing personality in the fitness industry, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of powerlifting, so to say. And I document my entire prep from treatment to training to diagnostics to management every single week over on Elite FTS. And it's some of the best continuing education that Dave and I are bringing. And I'm most proud about it because it is free. There is more, not better continuing education out in the industry for free, period. So that stuff is awesome. Fixing Dave Tate over on Elite FTS. Uh, May 25th, over on Bodybuilding.com, I have a mega project that's going to be launching. It's called Unstoppable. The all ultimate guide to training through injury. This is going to be a deep dive into many of the different topics that we talked about today. And this is going to be housed on bodybuilding.com's all-access program. So everyone's going to be able to access this thing for $8.99. It's by far the most in-depth project that I've ever put out there for people. And the ability for people to get it for under $10 is going to be crazy. And, um, you know, I'm going to be speaking all over the year, the world this year, but two of our biggest events are going to be uh, June 9th and 10th in Miami, Florida for my pain-free performance training system. And then I'm going to be also headed out to Seattle, Washington later on in the year, September 8th and 9th, again, for the pain-free performance training system seminar. Um, those are again, my most deep dive seminar based content, um, uh, highlight. Really recommend it, and we've sold out the first three events of the year, so I'm looking forward to these last two.
0: Awesome! So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. I appreciate it. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 126. Hopefully, you enjoyed that as much as I did and got something out of it. And if I was you, I would highly suggest you go to Dr. John Russin's website to read as many articles as possible because this guy is a genius. And again, I am going to ask every single one of you to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, everyone you know, to build this podcast as one of the best in the world. And I'm going to continue delivering the best interviews from the people that I look up to. And until next week, you guys, that's it for me.